Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, College for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, June 8th, we are studying Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 to 10. In today's text, John sees a beast rising out of the sea, and the dragon gives to this beast his power and authority, and the beast is allowed to make war on the saints of God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Matt Ulmer. Pastor Ulmer serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas. Pastor Ulmer, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good morning. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Pastor Ulmer, as we get started today, talk to us a little bit about the book of Revelation in general. How should we approach it as Christians? Why is it a useful book to us? Yeah, so the book of Revelation is uh, the book that John writes down when he is exiled on the island of Patmos, and an angel comes to him and basically tells him that he is going to get this vision and that he is to write everything down uh, that he sees. Um, in this particular section of Revelation, you have this kind of strange, but in a strange way, wonderful story about the history of the church. Uh, kind of, you have in, in Revelation 11, you have the story of the church being reduced to two witnesses and them making confession about Jesus and who he is, and eventually... Um, the world kills them and God raises them up after three days. And then in 12, you have a nice uh, compact story speaking about uh, the birth the birth of the promised child being Jesus, uh, the woman being Mary, which ends up being the church, and then the dragon, which is Satan's uh, war against um, the woman and the child. You see then the battle in heaven where, of course, um, Saint Michael and all of the angels, they do war against the devil and his minions and kick them out of heaven because there's no longer any room for an accuser in heaven because they have a much better advocate in Jesus Christ, the one who uh, shed his blood uh, to redeem his people. So now he is the one speaking to God on behalf of humanity. And then we transition into 13. Uh, kind of now that this dragon, this beast, Satan, has been thrown down to earth, we get this image of uh, two beasts. We're going to speak about one today, but talking about how uh, Satan, the great dragon, uh, does his work uh, on earth, uh, especially in our context, it's important to know the, uh, the tools that he uses to do battle against his, uh, God's church. So as we start to read Revelation 13, we're going to stay in pretty close connection with what we have been reading in Revelation chapter 12. I appreciated the way you connected it to Revelation chapter 11 as well. At the end of Revelation 11, we heard the last of the seven trumpets be blown, and we've talked a little bit about how chapter 12 
starts the cycle over again, but it seems to be a little bit more than an interlude, as we've called some other texts. There seems to be a, a grander cosmic picture being given here in Revelation 12 and into 13 as well. And I think it's a pretty close connection between chapters 12 and 13, where at the end of 12, the dragon has become furious with the woman, the church, because the dragon has not been able to harm her. Now he's going after the woman's offspring. We talked about how that's talking about individual Christians. So the, the devil is still going to try to attack individual Christians, even if he's never going to be able to conquer the church as a whole. So you're telling us what we're going to read now are the ways in which the dragon makes use of tools to attack us as Christians. That's absolutely right. As uh, we like talking about very much that our God likes using means to give us his gifts, uh, the dragon also uses means to do uh, harm and damage to the church. So you also mentioned that in this chapter we're going to encounter two beasts. We get the first of those beasts today. And I, I was reading in one of the commentaries that I have um, by Pastor Martin Franzman on the book of Revelation, how he, he thinks about the dragon and these two beasts as an anti-trinity of sorts, which I think is an, is an interesting thought. Have you, did you read anything about that, just thinking about these two chapters going together? I know you said before we started, this is one of your favorite sections of the book. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on this being an anti-trinity of sorts. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I read anything like that, but just kind of gut, gut feeling. I, I kind of like that. Um, I guess the only thing that I would maybe say off the, off the cuff right away is that maybe anti-trinity is a good way of thinking it, and maybe it's not, because I think the discussion that we're going to have here in a second is going to make it very clear um, that the the three of these uh, entities are not equal. Right. Um, the the dragon seems to be. If, if you want to think about it in terms of like a, a story or a movie, the real bad guy, um, he is the he is the mastermind behind the, the devilish works of the two beasts. Uh, so where we would understand the Trinity being uh, one God, three persons uh, co-equal in, in their divinity here in this anti-Trinity, you have one great enemy using two uh, separate uh entities to do his bidding. Now, I will say, um, thinking about it in, in terms, speaking towards the idea of the anti-Trinity, uh, the two beasts are very powerful. Uh, they are very effective. And without give, giving away too much of what we're talking about today, um, they're still alive and kicking. Okay. Yeah. I think that's, I think those helpful, helpful comments so that if, if you hear those talk about this as an anti-Trinity. We don't take it the wrong direction in terms of what we believe about the Trinity. You were quoting there from the Athanasian Creed. So yeah, very, very helpful comments here, Pastor Ulmer. We're reading Revelation 13 this morning, the first 10 verses. Here is the text. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads, with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. 
And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. That's our text for today. That's Revelation 13, verses 1 to 10. This is wild, Pastor Ulmer. Oh, yeah. Every time every time I read the book of Revelation, and every time I introduce it especially, and I say, hey, here's what we're about to read about. This is this is just an amazing vision that John has. It It's amazing um, and terrifying and... Um... And yet, and yet, as much as it is terrifying, it is a book of hope for us as Christians. It, yes, and and even here, there's words of hope. Um, That's right, which is amazing. Right. All right, so let's let's work our way through it. So let's let's start with where this beast comes from. As we mentioned previously, we're right on the heels of chapter twelve, and John has just seen the dragon standing on the sand of the sea. And it is toward the sea now that he looks and he sees this beast rising from. So talk about the the place from which this beast rises, the sea. Yeah, so I'm not sure how much you have talked about it in the previous guest on Sharper Iron, but you have to remember kind of who is writing this book and the culture uh, into which it was written. You're talking about John uh, the Revelator, uh, St. John, the Beloved Disciple, uh, being a, a good Jewish uh, man, uh, of course, growing up in an ancient Near Eastern culture. And for the people of that time in that culture, it was pretty widely understood uh, that the sea was an entity that was chaotic. Uh, it was an entity that... I think in some of the things I read was was pretty uh, much understood as evil. Um, so you have this beast coming out of this chaos and out of this evil and out of this untamed um, force. Um, and this beast that comes out of this chaos and evil is about to, to wreak havoc on, on the world coming out of the sea. So with the Old Testament context in which John is is writing and coming out of, for him to see a beast rising out of the sea makes perfect sense. I mean, you can think of of several examples in the Old Testament. Maybe you can give us some of those, some of the places in the Old Testament and in the New, where we see the sea as a place that needs to be tamed, a place of chaos and and evil. Well, yeah, the very first of which comes right away in the book of Genesis, because Moses records that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God is seen hovering over waters. Um, you have the sea then in the, the Noah epic, 
where God raises the waters uh, to destroy what God has made and saving uh, creation through the boat. Um, you have uh, a, one of my fa- other favorite uh, pieces of the Old Testament, specifically in God's dialogue with Job. Um, when Job is finally able to to talk to God, God tells him, where were you when he created the the heavens and the earth, and he asked Job specifically if he is able to tame the sea and also later the the great sea creatures that are in the sea, namely Leviathan. Uh, I know the Psalms speak about uh, the sea and its chaotic uh, nature uh, quite a bit, uh, a thing that we're going to get into in just a little bit. Uh, Daniel 7 speaks about the sea and in specific context of beasts coming out of the sea. Um, Going into the New Testament, I think the the greatest example of the sea is uh, the the instance where Jesus is on the boat with his disciples and he he goes to sleep and a great storm uh, comes up and the disciples are terrified uh, for their lives. They come go down and wake up Jesus and say, Master, aren't you worried that we're going to die? And and Jesus basically shrugs it off and says, dude, you're with me. You have nothing to worry about. And then he speaks a word and calms uh, the wind and the waves. So you have lots and lots of uh, various uh, images in both the Old Testament and the New where the sea is a very dangerous, chaotic, and evil place. And so, and I think one of the, the key takeaways for some of the examples that you brought up, especially when we think about the book of Revelation as a book of hope, is that even in all those cases where the sea is a chaotic place, a place that the, the people of God may be prone to fear, yet the Lord re- remains the Lord of the seas, especially, you know, thinking about the New Testament example that you brought up, and, and Job, and even Noah, where this, this destructive nature of the sea, still there the Lord has control, the Lord is the one who calms the seas, and even for us as the people of God, the the Lord is the one who takes use of that water that would be destructive, and he uses it for our salvation and baptism. I don't want to go too far afield here, but I, I do think it's worth pointing out that even with the destructive nature of the sea, as we see this terrifying beast rise from it, we we are given hope to know that the Lord retains his control over the sea and anything that would come out of it. Yes, and I, I think that's very, very clear in all of the the passage of scriptures referring to the sea. All, near all of them that I can think of, in Genesis 1, God is the one who organizes the chaos, and then God saves his people in the boat. Uh, what's the one? Isaiah 57, um, God is the one who is there protecting his people. The Psalms talk about God protecting his people from the waters. And then, of course, it's Jesus, the Son of God, become flesh, who calms the sea to save his disciples. So God is always the one there who has the power to save, even from this a terrifying and destructive force. Another thing I think it's it's worth pointing out about the sea, and this, without getting too far afield from our text today, tomorrow we're going to see a beast arise from the land. And so when you've got these two beasts, one in the sea, one in the land, we're going to see how the devil's going to attack us from every direction possible. There's yep. a totality there, that there's a beast from the from the sea and from the land. Uh, the other thing that I, I'm curious on your thoughts about, when you think about where John is at the moment, he's on the island of Patmos. And generally speaking, which that's just off the coast 
of Turkey, just to the, the west of Turkey. So if he looks the direction of the sea from where he is, quite literally on Patmos, generally speaking, he's going to look towards, say, Rome. Rome. So do you think there's something to that in terms of thinking about, and I know we're going to talk more about this, but when you think about who this beast represents, is there something to the, the fact that he's going to be looking in that general direction toward Rome? I'll keep this answer short and sweet. Yes. Okay. All right. So again, just knowing the geography there, he's generally looking toward Rome, the superpower at the time. That's going to help us think about who this beast is without losing the fact that we still see this beast at work today. So we've got a beast rising out of the sea. That's the source is the sea. Now let's just talk a little bit about the fact that we're talking about a beast and the beast has a description. You mentioned Daniel 7. So let's talk a little bit about the, the fact that it's a beast at all. Yeah, so for, for the listeners today, I think if you're going to do a deep dive, especially into this section of Revelation, you have to mark the similarities between this and Daniel chapter 7. So, I mean, Daniel, the context of that book is Daniel is one of those in exile in Babylon. And while he is there, he has this vision of four beasts that come coincidentally or not so out of the sea. Um, and in uh, the in this particular prophecy, um, he is seeing some some powers. He is seeing. I think we can we can kind of stop hiding the ball here. He's seeing um, eras of powers and kings who are going to come onto the land. Um, to, I guess in terms of a beast, to enact tremendous uh, tyranny and bloodshed on the land, uh, to use power and the, the sword to accomplish their task like a, like a wild beast would, would tear apart its prey. Um, in Daniel's context, he sees four separate beasts. I think the first one of which is the, the beast that the people of God were under the control of being the Babylonian Empire. Um, and then following that, he sees a vision of three more uh, beasts, uh, the last of which I think we can pretty well uh, say is the one that John is seeing right here. Okay, so there's the four beasts in Daniel chapter 7. And, and in some sense, there's I, I think you're right to identify that last beast particularly as a continuation in what John's seeing here. Although as, as you do read what Daniel sees there in those four beasts, it's almost like they're sort of mashed together into yes. one here in Revelation. And and in backwards order. I, I think I read that, I, I think it was Dr. Brighton's commentary that kind of says that through John, you kind of see the iterations of uh, the the beast that's been there all along in the four beasts in reverse order is kind of like, I don't know, like a telescope looking backwards. Mm -hmm. So you end up seeing the thing that holds these kingdoms in common being the Babylonians who get taken over by the Persians, who get taken over by the Greeks, who finally get taken over by this force, fourth beast, which uh, we're at least going to make the initial claim is likely Rome. Okay. 
So, I mean, you've, you've already kind of brought out the fact that we're talking especially about political entities, earthly authorities, the kingdoms of this world. Yep. Help us to, to make a, a, a careful identification of what we're talking about here. Because, I mean, on the one hand, we know that the Lord works through the kingdoms of this world, but here we're going to see the kingdoms of this world as a beast that's going to attack the Christian church. So help us to make a careful identification about what we're talking about with this beast. Yeah, so... I I want to, to reiterate what Pastor Apple is saying here. We have to be very, very careful about who we are talking about in reference to this beast while also being clear and concise in what we're talking about when we speak about the beast. Uh, I think if you want to reduce uh, what the beast is down to its kind of fundamental essence, it is... Uh, Political power and all of the power of the world that turns itself against uh, God and his work. In understanding this, um, as Pastor Apple said, uh, political, uh, the, the political arm of the world isn't necessarily a problem. In fact, in the Ten Commandments, we understand that authority is a very, very good thing. Honor your father and mother. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not anger, despise our parents and other authorities, but honor them, defend them, uh, honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. So God has all the power. He has all the kingdom in the world. and He uses people. He uses means in order to, to exercise that power in the world. We call this authority kind of delegated power. So God gives his sword to people to restrain evil and to uh, promote good. Um, so therefore, understanding government in these terms uh, should be a very positive thing in the idea, and in the or not the idea, in the eyes of a Christian. Agreed? I think so. Yeah. 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 I just, I, when we, when we talk about this as a, a political beast, sometimes that's even a, a more shorthand way of talking about this beast, or as I think you said very helpfully, political power of the world turned against God and his work. I think there is a temptation to think that government automatically equals evil. And I don't think that's what John is seeing here. And, and I don't either. And I think that's why we're spending so much time to carefully uh, speak about this. Now, the interesting thing about kind of that political power, which is human beings exercising God's power of the sword that he has given them to restrain evil, um, those same human beings are tempted by the exact same temptation that Adam and Eve are tempted by in the garden. It's that base temptation that Satan actually uses to to pull people away from God's plan and design by getting them to take something that is not theirs. In the case of the Garden of Eden, um, God restricted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to himself. So when Adam and Eve fell, they were taking something that was not theirs. In the case of the political beast, the issue here is, is Human beings are never content with authority. When offered power, um, they like to take what's not theirs, and they, they take that power for themselves. Therefore, um, 
the the sword of God is not a tool used to restrain evil and promote good. That sword is taken for the the human powers um, to do with to serve them, and that's the issue being spoken against in uh, this particular uh, beast, because. Any time that human beings take that power of the sword and take that power upon themselves, of course they are going to use it uh, for their benefit. And one of those benefits is ultimately going to be uh, restraining and trying to destroy the church because the church is going to be the place that says, hey, uh, you don't have that power. The power, the kingdom, the glory, they belong to God. You are merely a servant. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm reminded of Psalm 2 in this context, yeah. where, where David says, the, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. There's an example of those who had been entrusted with authority over others, an authority to serve others, now making use of that authority to ally themselves against the Lord, against his anointed, against his church. And I think the the very important thing that we want to see in what John is seeing about this beast then is the fact that this political power turned against God and his work is going to receive power and further power, and it's going to have its backing as the dragon. The, the yep. dragon is behind all of this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... I don't know if this is by by random chance or if I'm just the luckiest guy in the world. In my previous talks uh, with you, we have actually studied Romans 13, which is the great uh, passage on obeying authority. And uh, one of those passages that I didn't know so much about until I got asked to be on this program, when that one that we studied was Deuteronomy 17, which was the oh, yeah. uh, talking about the rules for kings. And... In that particular passage, you see very clearly that God, through Moses, is teaching the Israelites that their king is not to be one who is a lord over his people, not to be a man after the sake of power, but he is to be uh, equal with his brothers and sisters and serve them in righteousness. Uh, And the, the power by which he rules is the law. Hmm. Yeah, and so with political power gone astray in this way, rather than the Lord being the actual king, and I think that's one of the key points in in Deuteronomy 17 and elsewhere when kings are spoken of, especially in the Old Testament, the Lord's the one who's actually the king. Everybody else is underneath him. He is the king of kings. It's, It's when political power goes astray and tries to usurp God's rightful role, that's when everything goes bad, and that's where that political power turns into this beast backed by the dragon that will end up persecuting, attempting to hurt the church. But the Lord's going to have something to say about that. We're going to keep looking at this text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Matt Ulmer this morning about Revelation 13. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, June 8th. We're studying Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 to 10 with Pastor Matt Ulmer. He serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas. Pastor Ulmer, we've been talking about this first beast in Revelation 13, the political power of the world that is turned against God and his work, exemplified in John's day, especially by the Roman Empire. So let's talk about some of the details that we get about this beast, some of the things that he does that help us in that identification in John's day, and ways that we might understand this still at work in our day today. So I don't have any of the details about this beast's appearance that you want to pick up, the ten horns, the seven heads, the ten diadems. We talked about some of the connections to Daniel 7 in terms of the various animals that are mentioned. One of the striking things that happens in verse 3 is that one of the heads of this beast seems to have a mortal wound, but it's healed, and that causes the whole earth to marvel and to start to worship the dragon. So start taking us into any of these details about this beast and help us to see their significance. Yeah, so so the first thing I think is understanding the heads and the horns and the diadems. So this uh, points directly to the dragon in Revelation 12. The dragon has seven heads, ten horns, ten diadems. I think the difference is, and Dr. Brighton does point this out, that... For the dragon, the diadems, namely the crowns, uh, designating royalty are upon the heads, where at the beast, the the diadems are on the horns. Um, so number w- number one, this subordinates the beast to the dragon because the diadem is not on the head, it's on the horn. And number two, I think it speaks to who or what the dragon is working through in these individual rulers. Um, anything else you want to say there? No, that's good. Talk to talk to us now about this mortal wound that's yeah. on one of the heads that is is healed and causes the earth to marvel. Yeah, so this is actually probably the verse that when I commented to you before we started talking, which makes it one of my favorite uh, things to talk about, especially in the book of Revelation is this this wonderful image where you have this head that has received this wound and should have died and yet somehow lives. Um, and this seems to indicate in the commentaries in, in, in my own study that this particular beast, um, while it does receive judgment, as all of the three previous beasts did, the Babylonians were conquered. The Persians were conquered. The Alexandrian uh, Empire was conquered. This is what happens to empires when they take what is not theirs. In judgment, God uh, does uh, cause them to be overthrown, even when he uses them for his own work. But for some reason, 
this uh, desire for that human grasp, uh, transcending authority and grabbing onto power, always seems to come back around. So you have this mortal wound that gets healed, to me, seems like an indicator of the cyclical nature of this tyranny that happens in human government. Hmm. Yeah, in a couple of commentaries that I read, there may be some references, again, in John's day to certain emperors who were either rumored to be dead and really weren't, or suffered, you know, very grievous wounds and didn't actually die. Both, I think, Caligula and Nero had accounts within their lives or, or maybe rumors spread about them that could fit here. The the thing that I, I think is is telling about what happens with this beast, that it's got a wound that seems to be mortal and it's healed and everyone marvels, is that this sounds an awful lot like a spin on what happens to Jesus. Yeah. And this is this is where Dr. Franzman's comment about the anti-Trinity, I think could provide some some helpful things to think about, that all that the devil can do as he seeks to destroy this world, all he can really do is imitate what God has done and, and kind of try to play off of that in some sort of false way. The devil can't come up with anything new on his own. He's got to try to imitate the things that God has done. And as you see the this sort of pseudo-resurrection account here for this sea beast— I think you start to see the while the while it is a very seductive thing, you start to see the cracks in the story, and, and I think that's helpful for us as Christians. That oh wow, this looks amazing, and yes, the whole earth is marveling, but we're able to recognize it as just the devil doing his same old thing of taking the truth of God's word and twisting it for his own purposes to deceive. Yeah, and the only thing that I would add to that is. Uh, I think I got this from from Pastor Jonathan Fisk, is the devil only ever had one lie, and it's you can be like God, and it is just simply not true. Uh, with this political power, it's the, the human being saying, I can ascend to that power, and no human being was ever um, built for that power, save our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who has properly received all authority in heaven and on earth by his dying and raising and ascending. So as this beast, this political power that sets itself against God and his work, as it begins you know, this supposed resurrection of sorts, then the earth starts to worship the dragon who's given authority to the beast in the first place. So they are also worshiping the beast there in verse 4. And the, the language that they use, I, again, I find very striking. Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Again, these oh. are things that we should be speaking about the Lord, but here the world is using such things to worship the devil and his demons. Yeah. So in so think about John in the context of where he's writing this book. Um, the Roman Empire to that point was the, the greatest empire and the greatest fighting force that the world had probably ever seen. I mean, they're controlling everything from North Africa to England. Um, and they, were do they did it with a kind of brutal efficiency and prowess in, in fighting skill. And I think here you have this natural tendency for people to see that kind of power um, and to worship it because that power is kind of a, uh, it's an aspect, it's a quality of God. Um, and when people see it, uh, they are tempted to worship it because we, 
we have to worship something. Um, we're, we're created to worship something, and when we can stick an idol in the place of God, we are happy to do so if it serves our own uh, potential needs. So when we're talking about Rome, um, I think you can rightly say from a human being's perspective, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? This is the most powerful force we've ever seen. You shouldn't, you shouldn't fight it. Just, just go along with this. Um, do what, do what this uh, uh, group tells you, even if it's being motivated by this dragon, even if it is evil, even if it has usurped its authority, uh, because fighting it is only going to lead to your death. Well, the, the church has a different perspective on these things in the world. Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Dr. Franzman points out the the similarity to these words again in the in in a demonic way though. In in Exodus 15 in the song of Moses after they've crossed the Red Sea, Exodus 15 verse 11 says, "Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods?" So I mean, again, notice the proper use of this of this term there. And again, in a context where you know, who could fight against Egypt? How could we possibly defeat Pharaoh and his army? Who could do that? Well, the Lord can. And in the context of, of Revelation 12 and 13, I think it's also worth pointing out that in the previous chapter, when we saw the war in heaven, who was it that was fighting against the dragon and his demons? It was Michael and his angels. And the name Michael means who is like God. And so, I mean, again, you see that just demonic twist here. Yeah. Well, who is like the beast? Who could ever possibly defeat the beast? Well, there is an answer to that question. And that question, the true answer points toward the true worship. But if we get sucked up into the, the wrong side of it, look at, at the dreadful demonic end. Yeah, because that, that worship, of course, leads to action, right? Yeah. Worship always leads to action. And what is uh, the action of, what is the action that is going to be required by the beast of its followers? And I think that's always something that is, is not good and is particularly um, helpful to think about and talk as the church because uh, these forces are still at play. And if, if we are worshiping men, if we are worshiping governments, and if we are worshiping power, um, what is that uh, beast going to ask people to do? And if we have set them as our gods, um, we will do those things. Mm. So let's keep talking about the way the beast works here. In verse 5, it says, The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It starts to open its mouth to utter such blasphemies. Now talk to us about the work of the beast there. Yeah, so I think... Uh, like the key word here is blasphemy, right? So blasphemy is this speaking against the work of God. Uh, math or Jesus um, in multiple places, uh, including Matthew 12, uh, talks about blasphemy. The Matthew 12 is, of course, that uh, passage where Jesus heals a demon uh, oppressed man and Jesus's detractors say that he is uh, removing those unclean spirits by the power of Beelzebub, and um, Jesus then famously kind of speaks how a house can't be divided against itself, and if their people could cast out demons, were they also in league with uh, the evil one? And finally, 
um, Jesus speaks against the the unforgivable sin, namely blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which I think we rightly understand as uh, not believing in the one whom the Father has sent. So faithlessness, not believing in Christ, is that unforgivable thing. What is the beast doing with its mouth? Once the authority has uh, usurped its authority and grabbed power, what does the beast do? Uh, It blasphemes God. Okay, and so the, this is the work of the devil again, yes. through the beast, so that those would others would hear this blasphemy and be drawn into it as well. One of the, the key words, I think, as well in this section, and this continues into verse 7 also, when the beast begins to make war on the saints and conquer them, is that the, the beast continues to be allowed to do these things. Mm-hmm. And, and we've, we've talked about this a little bit already, but maybe you can spend a little more time on it, Pastor Ulmer. Even with all the dragon is up to, through the work of this beast and the next, still the Lord, the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ, remains the King of Kings, and He is exercising His authority over all, ultimately for the good of His Church. There's another one of those handles for comfort in the midst of, yes. of a very, what otherwise might be a terrifying text. Talk to us more about that comfort there and that word, allowed. Yeah, so this is one of those things where I agree with you, Pastor Apple, that this word allowed it's nice here when that happens sometimes. <laughs> yeah, this word allowed here is a tremendous handle for comfort, but it's also in my pastoral experience not one that a lot of Christians like hearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that 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 kind of base desire to not like hearing it has to deal with uh, how long the church has been allowed to exist in comfort, um, if that makes sense. Um, because none of us likes to be uncomfortable. None of us likes to be persecuted. None of us likes to be harmed or slandered or threatened. But Scripture is very, very clear that God does permit this stuff to happen. God does use this stuff. I mean, as we're recording this, I think the last four or five Sundays we've been in First Peter— uh, in the epistle readings for the season of Easter, series C. And Peter over and over and over again says, hey folks, and pardon me for, for paraphrasing here, hey folks, your Lord Jesus suffered. His enemies hate him and they hate you because you belong to, you belong to Jesus. You're going to suffer too. Um, but it's okay. God still has you. Nothing is going to be able to tear you from his hands. So just um, entrust yourself to him. Rejoice in your sufferings. Boast in your sufferings. Consider it a, a wonderful and joyous thing that the world hates you as much as it hates your Lord. Mm. Yeah, yeah, which is not necessarily something you want to hear. No. But again, this is this is real comfort for the church, that even as that persecution comes, and it is bound to come, then the Lord still is at work protecting his church. And that is that is where we're starting to, to see this text go, even as the beast turns his attention especially to the saints. So in, in verse 7, also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. So but here we get this important caveat. All who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written into the book of life. And there's there's a lot there in that verse. I just kind of oh, summarized yeah. to that, that main point. 
But even as the beast begins to make war on the saints and conquer them in a certain sense, still those whose name is written in the book of life are not going to worship this beast and therefore not going to be worshiping the dragon. And that's a pretty key point. I, it is an absolutely essential point because I think that this verse here combined with the very end of verse 10 is kind of the the gigantic takeaway point for the church in John seeing this terrifying vision. Um, when this political power rises, or when this political power uh, kind of re-rises, that mortal head, that mortal wound that gets healed, when it comes back around and the church does begin persecuting, how does the church kind of deal with this situation because here's the deal folks um, it's going to come until Jesus Christ returns in the last day with all power with all authority with all honor with all praise to usher in his kingdom that never ends this cycle is going to continue what does the church need to know number one we do not worship the beast we do not worship the dragon and in this, uh, in this battle, which is a spiritual battle, it's the Lord who fights for us. And what we need to do is have endurance and perseverance and faith, trusting him as the people of God in the past always should have, trusting God to fight their battles, because when he is fighting, he doesn't lose. Hmm. So in, in verse 10, then, I mean, that's where... John's words written down in the book of Revelation are intended to give comfort, especially to the persecuted church, and to inspire in them endurance, even in the midst of persecution, not to take up the sword themselves, but to allow the Lord to be the one to wield his sword and to to take vengeance in his way and in his time. Yeah, I, I like that you use the word vengeance there because it's a very Old Testament word and a very Old Testament concept, especially in the Psalms where those wrongs and those evils that God permits to happen to his people, God is the one who promises to make good on those things on the last day. What, what God's people need to do is to hear his word, trust in him, and allow him to make good on it. Because as uh, God told Paul, his grace is sufficient for us. As you mentioned, Pastor Ulmer, we're we're on as we're recording this, we're right at the end of the season of Easter. We've just celebrated the ascension of our Lord. And, and thinking about the ascension of Jesus, especially in terms of Revelation 13, 10, with the idea of being taken captive, I'm reminded of the way Paul quotes from Psalm 68 in Ephesians chapter 4 concerning the ascension of Jesus, that Jesus has led a host of captives. Mm-hmm. And the way Luther talks about that in one of his ascension sermons is that Jesus has taken captivity captive. So that even if we are taken captive by the dragon through the work of this beast, yet we worship not the beast or the dragon, but the Lord who has already taken captivity captive and therefore has has set us free. And even if this beast should slay us with his sword, we know that a real resurrection is awaiting us. You brought up the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, and think about the way that, that their account ends, that they are killed. And yet the Lord raises them after a very short time. And I think all of that together, it encourages us again as the church in the midst of all this political power 
that might set itself against the Lord and his work. It encourages us to remain steadfast, to wait on the Lord, and let him be the one to reign and know that he will vindicate us at the end. Well, and it just kind of has to be that way, Pastor Apple, because as Jesus fairly, very clearly teaches that um, if somebody is to be his disciple and follow after him, he cannot love his life uh, more than him. Because in, in the same token, using the language of Revelation 13, if we, if we think that we are going to save our own physical lives by worshiping the beast, we forfeit our eternal life. Therefore, the, the action and the, the word and the work of the church can never be to, to pacify or mollify the beast. Uh, we, the church always needs to remain the church and speak faithfully uh, God's word, which means calling uh, those powers to repentance. And when the powerful are being called to repentant, repent, they don't like it very much. And we should be expected uh, to receive uh, that wrath. Yet, um, our life is not uh, held up in this world only. We are waiting for the resurrection in a life that will never end because we have become convinced that Jesus Christ has even put death to death. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think when it, we think about the expectation of us as Christians living in this world, it's worth pointing out that in this context, as the beast is is doing his work, and he's got this authority given over tr- every tribe, people, language, and nation, when you look at the, the split, everybody else other than the Christians, they're worshiping this beast. They're worshiping the dragon through this beast. And so again, we shouldn't be surprised when this sort of persecution comes, again, primarily we're thinking here through the political channels, the political power that sets itself against God and his work, that which would demand our allegiance over and above the loyalty that we and faith that we owe to God. But, I mean, what a, what a picture then. But again, that, that picture of the book of life of the Lamb, I think, is another handle for comfort. Talk to us a little bit more about this, this book of life. We've seen this elsewhere in, book, in the book of Revelation. We'll see it again coming up. Talk about it here in Revelation 13. Yeah. Isn't this such a, a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful image? It um, reminds me, of course, of Jesus uh, speaking to uh, the 72 when they return from their uh, work of doing the work of the kingdom in Luke 10 where um, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing uh, nothing at all shall hurt you, right? That's good news. But, but Jesus adds as the kicker in the end, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It also reminds me of specifically John 10, the, the great Good Shepherd um, passage where Jesus says of himself, the Good Shepherd, that he knows his sheep's name. Um, Jesus knows who his people are. Um, those who who have received his life by grace through faith, the work of the Holy Spirit and word and sacrament, there's, there's no way that he is going to forget a single one of them. So mm-hmm. Christians, if, if you see things in the world 
uh, that look very beast from the sea like um have no fear um yeah. your lord yeah. your lord knows who you are um he yeah. is not going to f- uh forget you nor forsake you he has died he has risen he has overcome death for you hmm. yeah and i think again in the same vein within verse 8 the fact that these names have been written in that book before the foundation of the world is another great comfort especially when you think about the way that this beast presents itself as one who's got this mortal wound that seems to have been healed it, this this beast seems like it's it's going to be an eternal thing just keep on going and going and going where is where does eternity truly lie but in our lord jesus christ who has in in whom God has chosen us for salvation from before the foundation of the earth. This is this too is a great comfort. It, it seems that you know if we don't ally ourselves with this political beast, that we will lose our lives. And in, in fact, it's the exact opposite. It is only when we are allied with the Lord Jesus Christ, who has chosen us from before the foundation of the world, completely by His grace. There, there, that real eternity again is is another handle for comfort for us in this chapter. Amen. And and knowing this for certain, that in his absolutely wonderful divine plan of salvation, God knew the cost from the beginning, and he uh, determined that paying the cost for you was worth it, to make mm-hmm. you his own, so that you might live with him in his everlasting kingdom and eternal innocence, righteousness, and blessedness. He valued you that much that he paid the price of his son he knew he'd have to pay it before he said avaihi or let there be light when he organized uh the sea uh the chaos into order um he knew your name um hmm. and, and he's Ron, coming we got again. about a we got about a minute left here help us to see the warning that's there for us in this text from revelation 13 and also the hope that's ours in our lord jesus christ yeah absolutely uh so when you hear Revelation 13, understand that St. John is getting a image of the world and the end times, and that in this period of time, there is going to be this political beast that is going to keep on reoccurring, uh, this political beast that decides to transcend and usurp its authority and grab onto God's power. And when it does this, it sets itself it sets itself up, it sets itself up as an idol against the one true God and demands that uh, other people uh, follow and worship it, which ultimately will lead to eternal death. But have no fear. Um, God knows this is happening. God is permitting it to happen. And for uh, your sake and for mine, uh, he has sent his son to die to cover your sins. He's raised him from the dead to defeat death. And all you need do is ask him for vindication, and he says, um, I love you. I will vindicate you. And we wait patiently till the last day for that to happen. Pastor Matt Ulmer is pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas. He has been helping us today to study Revelation 13, verses 1 to 10. Pastor Ulmer, thanks for being our guest today. It's always a pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about this part of Revelation 13, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.